Welcome to the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. I'm Katharina Emschelmann, Deputy Director at the Center. Each episode, we invite an international security scholar to help unpack a hot topic that's made the news. In today's episode, we talk about terrorism. It's been 20 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. 20 years of the so-called war on terror. And now, almost two weeks since the last U.S. soldier left Afghanistan. On the eve of the 9-11 anniversary, the magazine Foreign Affairs asks, who won the war on terror? That's why I called one of our own, terrorism expert Julian Wucherpfennig, professor of international affairs and security here at the Hertie School. His research focuses on the strategic nature of political violence and conflict, especially ethnic civil war and terrorism. Julian and I discuss what terrorists want, what went wrong in the so-called war on terror, the effects of domestic counterterrorism measures, and finally, the policy implications of terrorism research. Now, I'm excited to welcome Julian Wucherpfennig as our September guest scholar on the Berlin Security Beat. Hello, Julian. It's great to be here. Hello, Katharina. Hi. You're somewhat of a movie buff. You even show movies in class from time to time. Tell us, are there any new movies or TV shows you can recommend? Absolutely. Something that I would like to highlight here is a recent gem that I discovered, which is an outstanding TV series called Midnight Diner. Mm -hmm. And Midnight Diner tells the stories of ordinary Japanese people who meet at a small eatery that's open between midnight and 7 a.m. in the morning. And the show is very diverse in terms of the people it covers, and it really instills a sense of peace and is almost meditative. Still highly recommended. Now, this is the Berlin Security Beat, and I always ask, what song best describes the current state of the world? Mm, yeah, that's a, a good question. For me, I would have to go back to some of my childhood heroes. That's the Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> and the song that I think is most applicable these days is Power of Equality. And throughout this podcast, we're going to see how equality uh, matters and how inequality is a driver of conflict. It's been 20 years since the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. Let's go back in time. Where were you that Tuesday and how did you first hear about the attacks? I very vividly remember how I spent that day. In fact, 9-11 took place during my very first week as an undergraduate student in Germany. Oh. So in a way, it has shaped my academic career from day two, so to say, because it happened on a Tuesday. And I would also say that it probably fostered an interest in terrorism, at least in the long run. Now, um, I was in a lecture and the professor kept getting a bunch of phone calls that he pressed away. Turned out that uh, he had just returned from a year at Columbia University in New York City. And so he kept getting all these phone calls from friends and colleagues who wanted to let him know that they were okay. But of course, we had no idea at the time uh, what was going on. And it was only during a break that we learned that a plane had crashed into the World Trade Center and that the Pentagon was on fire. But the full details we only learned after class when pretty much the entire university gathered in front of any TV that was available to follow the events unfold. During live coverage of the events, journalist Tom Brokaw of NBC News exclaimed, terrorists have declared war on the United States. 
a declaration of war by terrorists. Is that what it was? At least that's how it was meant to be perceived. So if we want to make sense of the 9-11 attacks, we should first clarify what terrorism is, because this is a uh, the most severe terrorist attack in the history. So there are many definitions, but one of my favorite ones states that terrorism is the threatened or actual use of illegal force and violence by a non-state actor with the aim of attaining a political, economic, religious, or social goal by means of deliberately creating and exploiting fear. So what's important to note here is that the targets, the real targets of terrorism they usually extend beyond the immediate victim. You know? There's a famous saying that terrorists don't necessarily want a lot of people dead, but they certainly do want a lot of people watching. Well, that was achieved on 9-11. Absolutely, so, which always means that terrorism requires this audience. And so the idea is that the victims themselves are, in most cases, somewhat arbitrary, but that the audience somehow identifies with the victims and is led to believe that this could have been them or a loved one. and so. Now the audience wants to prevent similar attacks from happening in the future. In that sense, most scholars nowadays think of terrorism as something that is fundamentally strategic and rational, that it is a strategy that weak non-state actors can use in order to basically convince a much more powerful actor, typically the states, that this weak non-state actor and their cause is to be taken seriously. And if they don't, then bad things are going to happen. And that's a very, very universal logic that describes terrorism today just as much as it describes terrorism 50 years ago. That's interesting, because right after 9-11, George Bush, then president of the United States, said this is a new kind of evil. So you're saying it's not that new. The general logic is definitely not new. Um, so if we look closer at the strategy, can you tell me what the 9-11 attackers were trying to communicate? Absolutely. So in my understanding, the 9-11 attacks can be best understood as a combination between two strategies of terrorism, that is attrition and provocation. Attrition is basically the idea that you want to convince the enemy that you as the terrorist organization are very resolved and that you're able to inflict serious damage, serious pain. So in other words, it's about instilling fear. And obviously, it would be very hard to deny that uh, this did not happen in the 9-11 attacks, given that nearly 3,000 people were killed in, uh, in a series of attacks that were orchestrated that targeted some of the most iconic and symbolic targets that the United States had to offer, and that the attackers themselves were actually willing to go as far as sacrificing their own lives. So um, as basically predicted, I would say, the attacks generated massive amounts of fear yeah, that uh, almost immediately led to a sense of alarmism. So, for example, Rudy Giuliani, the mayor of New York City at the time, literally warned of, quote unquote, dozens and dozens and multi years of attacks like this. And so now uh, this kind of panic then went hand in hand with depicting Al Qaeda as these irrational, bloodthirsty monsters. Most people failed to appreciate that Al Qaeda had actually very carefully and strategically planned not only the attacks themselves, but they had also thought very clearly about how these attacks would come to be interpreted. That is, uh, what kind of reaction would follow. And the second one after attrition? The strategy of provocation. Um, 
So I would argue that the United States and its allies, the coalition of the willing, actually took the bait that al-Qaeda offered to them. They got played by being provoked into what is now known as the so-called war on terror. During an address to a joint session of Congress nine days after the attacks, George Bush said, Our war on terror begins with al-Qaeda, but it does not end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. Thus began the so-called global war on terror. It's been 20 years. I recently read an article by Hal Brands and Michael O'Hanlon in Survival that said the war on terror has not yet failed. Do you agree with them? That's a good question. Uh... The war on terror certainly hasn't succeeded, right? The Bush administration decided basically that the only language that would be understood by the perpetrators or the terrorist organization behind the 9-11 attacks would be responding in kind by launching military action on Afghanistan with the stated aim of toppling the Taliban regime, punishing them for harboring al-Qaeda and installing a new liberal democratic regime. As we know now, that basically didn't work out. And it, it turned out to be much more difficult than initially thought, you know, even for the most powerful military in the world. Maybe we can talk about those difficulties of the war on terror a little bit. I read an article by Andrew Kidd and Barbara Walter who argue when terrorists pursue a combination of strategies, like the one you just described with provocation and attrition, the state response must work well against this combination. But the problem is the response to one strategy might be inappropriate for other strategies. Maybe you can explain to us how this affected the war on terror. Yeah, now we're at the sort of implementation stage basically how the United States carried out the war on terror, so the nitty-gritty details. And here I think critical mistakes were made in terms of warfare, which takes us back to this logic of provocation, um, right? So al-Qaeda understood very well that the U.S. response would be very harsh, that it would be excessive, if not disproportional. And in terms of carrying out this response, that it would be very difficult for the U.S. to tell who is friend and who is foe, and that The war would be fought through um, insurgency or guerrilla warfare. And uh, perhaps most importantly, that there would be many, many civilian victims. Um, now, civilians usually have friends, they have family. They're typically not amused if their loved ones come to die or otherwise come to harm. And so over time, given that people that had nothing to do with the attacks came to harm, uh, this increasingly led to an alienated population which then unquestionably played into the hands of terrorist groups who were increasingly in a favorable position to actually portray the United States and its allies as evil, as an opponent. You know? We should probably also mention judiciary or extra-legal responses in this context that helped bring about these alienated populations. So we mm -hmm. all probably remember the dehumanizing and very powerful images coming from Guantanamo, Abu Ghraib, the discussions around the use of torture, waterboarding, and all this. Mm. Um, and it goes without saying that this contributed to damaging the reputation and credibility of the United States and its allies. And in the grand scheme of things, that probably helped the extremists to stay strong or further advocate their cause for people yeah, that previously did not side with them, but basically learned that the occupiers did not have to offer so much. 
So we've covered some of the nitty gritty of the war on terror, but maybe you now want to take a step back and talk about the bigger issues of the war on terror. Yeah. So with the benefit of hindsight here, right, why has the United States and its allies, why have they had such a hard time um, in the war on terror? I think the failure started more or less on day one when the course was set for difficulties. And I would argue that the war on terror was basically flawed by design. And the key systemic flaw was based on this neoconservative illusion that it would be possible to just parachute into a country to build a state that is both legitimate to its own population and loyal to the United States at the same time. And it was also based on this flawed premise that the United States believed that only a clear signal of strength would prevent further attacks of the type of 9-11. So given that there was this alarmism at the time, the bottom line is that the United States was willing to pump a lot of money into this project, um, by most estimates, roughly $5 trillion so far. And a big chunk of this money was paid in the form of military aid to governments in the region, with the instruction being that this money was to be used to fight terrorism. The result was that the United States actually created a set of client states with elites that realized that they could live rather well off this business of fighting terrorism. And so in reality, the incentive structure that the United States had uh, created actually provided perverse incentives in the sense that many states like you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Yemen, Egypt, and so on, um, they all had incentives to actually play up the threat of terrorism. And ultimately, they didn't have a clear incentive to eradicate terrorism on their soil. So instead of fighting terrorism, these states grew increasingly corrupt. They became more oppressive. There's many more flaws. State building didn't really go so well either. Why is that? Well, the United States somewhat naively thought, um, or the Bush administration to be precise, basically thought that uh, foreign imposed regime change would just lead to stable democracy. And what they failed to realize, or perhaps even chose to ignore, was that the states in question, they were poor, mostly illiterate. They didn't have a prior experience with democracy, all of which we have known for a long time are factors that speak against setting up stable democracy. In fact, Samuel Martin Lipset, the late 1950s, very clearly showed uh, that there are some social and economic requisites of democracy, which is literally the title of one of the most cited and influential works in all of political science. Listen to the scientists. Listen to the scientists. Another huge flaw was the belief that the central solution to stable regimes was simply to turn weak states into strong regimes and that the old regimes that were disloyal to the United States had to go entirely and without question. But by toppling, by ousting these regimes, the United States actually showed very little understanding of the ethnic and tribal realities and especially how ethnic grievances work. And so, for example, in Iraq, the removal of Saddam Hussein's Ba'ath party meant that the previously dominant Sunni group clearly lost large amounts of its access to executive power. And the resulting grievances then, again, played into the hands of extremists, helped create or bring about the Islamic State that essentially grew strong on a platform that, that claims to represent, that claims to champion Sunni interests. You know? mm. 
Now, through research that I've been involved in, we now know that this is basically a recipe for disaster and that ethnic grievances matter, that inclusion, power sharing, and compromise are much better suited to generate peace in ethnically diverse societies. Spoiler alert, in our forthcoming book entitled Sharing Power, Securing Peace, Lars-Erik Sidemann, Simon Hook, and I Uh, We argue just that and uh, provide systematic evidence for exactly these points. 20 minutes will never be enough to cover 20 years of war and terror. So maybe after now we have covered some of the large flaws, some of the smaller flaws, both in strategy and implementation. Maybe we can turn inward and talk about the counterterrorism measures that were implemented after 9-11, what worked and what didn't. Absolutely. So the kind of paranoia that was present, especially in the aftermath of 9-11, obviously also had massive impacts on counterterrorism in Western countries, even though terrorism had been declining since the 1970s. In Germany, since 2001, since the 9-11 attacks, on average, just two people per year have been killed in terrorist attacks. Now, of course, Every death due to terrorism is tragic, but in the grand scheme of things, two people per year, that's not a lot. If we keep in mind that roughly eight people are killed annually through lightnings, that there are 3,000 traffic fatalities, that domestic accidents kill 12,000 people every year. So it's fair to say that the risk stemming from terrorism, they're very, very low to begin with. At the same time, we know from public opinion research that lots of people are afraid of terrorism, that on average, In Germany, for example, roughly 50% of people have actually been worried severely of the threat of terrorism. Um, And so these worries have obviously been also been translated into countermeasures, um, you know, increased surveillance, restrictions of freedoms, all in all massive spending to make an already small risk just a tiny little bit smaller. Mm -hmm. We don't have good numbers on counterterrorism spending from Europe, but uh, a reasonable estimate from the United States is that since 9-11, $2 trillion, so roughly $100 billion per year, have been spent on uh, domestic counterterrorism measures in addition to the cost of the war on terror, which is, you know, it's an insane amount of money. Some really interesting research on this comes from John Mueller and Mark Stewart, they've asked how much terrorism would actually have to be prevented in order for this kind of spending to pay off. Ooh, now I'm interested. Yeah. And, you know, just as an example, they took the Boston Marathon bombing as a benchmark. Now, apparently, a serious estimate for an attack of this size is roughly $400 million to equate the human lives and economic destruction the the Boston Marathon bombing caused. Now, leaving aside the issue of whether we can quantify human lives in dollars, they then made this conservative assumption that the counterterrorism spending in the U.S. run $100 billion per year allows you to prevent half of all attacks that absent the spending would have materialized. And so then they asked, at what point do we break even? At what point does it pay off to spend this kind of money? So how many attacks would we have to see in the absence of this spending in order for this to be justifiable? And uh, the answer is very shocking to me. It's that we would have to see 300 Boston Marathon scale attacks every year in order to justify the cost. In other words, there would have to be an attempted attack 
of such a scale every day of the week except Sunday. Oh boy. And again, this underlines how fears of terrorism in Western countries are just massively out of proportion. They're fed by fear. And why does it matter? Well, you could say that it's okay to invest this kind of spending, but the problem is, of course, that any dollar or euro spent on counterterrorism is a dollar that cannot be spent on other causes, cancer research, building safer bike lanes, you name it. You recently wrote a paper titled Unpacking the Refugee Terrorism Nexus. And what I found interesting in it, you quote Donald Trump and Syrian refugees who said, we cannot let them in the country. This could be one of the great Trojan horses. So he's clearly fanning fears of refugees importing terrorism. Does your research say those fears are justified? So my colleague, Sarah Polo, and I, we started to, to look into this by compiling relevant data on uh, refugee migration by origin and destination countries, which we then matched with corresponding data on transnational terrorist attacks to see if forced migration can actually serve as this vehicle, as this Trojan horse for transnational terrorism. What we found clearly contradicts any claims that hosting more refugees means importing more terror. Um, not even if the refugees themselves come from countries in which uh, terrorist organizations that pursue some kind of transnational agenda that are active in foreign countries, they come from those countries. So the security-related fears that we are hearing in the context of hosting refugees, they're clearly unfounded. So what will be your policy recommendation based on your research? Well, um, what we found is that refugees themselves are actually regularly the victims of terrorism in Western countries. You know, right-wing terrorism is on the increase, and it's clearly related to such, as we show, false fears. You know? And they're often driven by in-group, out-group divisions that have to do with nationalism, xenophobia, and we're seeing this shift towards more isolationism, which I think is dangerous. So, One case in point is from an ongoing project that I'm doing together with Sarah Polo and Sergi Pados Parado, where we're looking at this new, well, actually it's an old phenomenon of border walls or heavily fortified borders that are currently popping up left and right. So we collected data and in 1989, when the Berlin Wall came down, there were roughly a dozen international borders that were separated through border walls. At this point in time, we are close to approximating 100 such walls. And many of these walls are actually built with the stated purpose of protecting against migration and terrorism. And so we started to examine whether border walls actually work as a security policy to reduce terrorist attacks that originate from neighboring countries. And again, what we found sort of contradicts the populist logic or rhetoric, namely that walls don't reduce terrorism, but they actually foster terrorism from groups in those countries against which the walls are built. So states that build walls tend to see more terrorism after they've built a wall than they did before. And if you think about it and consider what border walls actually do represent or symbolize, You know, they symbolize exclusion, they symbolize uh, hostilities towards outgroups, then I think this is actually plausible and sadly does make sense. So last question, what is the best book you've recently read? Yeah, that's a very good question. And I have a clear winner here. Ooh. And the winner is a book called Monsters to Destroy, Understanding the War on Terror by Navin Bapat. 
which is a very thorough and analytically compelling analysis of the war on terror. It inspired a lot of my own thinking about it. And it's also an excellent example of what I think makes uh, good research. It's analytically rigorous. It combines theory and evidence at the right level of abstraction, and it's policy relevant. Awesome. Thank you. And thank you for doing this. It's been a pleasure. This was an episode of the Berlin Security Beat, a podcast from the Center for International Security at the Hertie School in Berlin. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, review, and tell a friend. 